0: what is up everybody coming to you live from my parents house we got episode 36 and this feels like the first episode in a long while that i'm doing an actual jangavi show so for those of you that are new welcome but i highly doubt there's very many of you because the engagement's been quite low recently so from all my old patrons for all the old people that are back hello hi I hope everyone is doing well. Hope things are going well on your end. It's certainly been busy on mine. uh, So I haven't really had the time to put an episode together. Uh, I've had a couple. I've actually been working on like four or five episode concepts at the same time. I just haven't like really uh, recorded any of them. So this is, I guess, the first one I've recorded in a while. And the first one I like fully intend on putting out, which is kind of cool. Uh, So I hope you guys do enjoy it. Um, Do expect more episodes coming in the next few weeks. And also, if you've noticed, my microphone, I kind of shifted it a little downward. I'm seeing if this setup works a little better in terms of like audio clarity and stuff. So do feel free to let me know if this is a setup that you guys like. If it's not, then we can totally shift to something else. But anyway... What are we here to talk about today? Because the Chingavi show, uh, you know, I, I've kind of gone from this ADHD news show where I cover everything, a little bit of everything, to kind of really focusing in on one thing um, as of recently. And, and today, I really will be doing the same thing. I'll, I'll kind of be uh, on that one story. But you're going to kind of see how this one story sort of applies to everything That's been going on not everything. I mean, obviously, you know, mass shootings, I guess, has been the major topic of conversation the last week or so here. But this this is not about mass shootings Um, in a way it is, but it's really has very little to do with mass shootings. It's more so to do with an event per se that not a lot of people in America uh, and even our generation. And by our generation, I'm talking about my generation, which is Generation Z. Don't really know about this event. There's probably a f- there's probably a few that do. Uh, if you had a great history teacher like I did, shout out Mr. Davy, you know about it. Um, but if you if you don't, or if you didn't, or if you didn't really have the best uh, history education in general, because I know there's a lot of places around this country that choose to uh, pick and choose specific parts of history. Uh, this may have been one of them. Or if you're in a foreign country, you may not have heard of this event. So. I kind of want to tell you guys a little story because this is an event that I feel like Gen Z should know about uh, and that a lot of people should know about, but really it's gotten quite forgotten and it's it's an event that all our parents know, um, but not necessarily the younger members of our generation. So that's why I think uh, this story is important. So uh, let me tell you a story. This is going to kind of be like a little story, but it's also a historical story and an event. So you'll kind of get the gist of where I'm going very quickly here. I just don't want to reveal the Uh, the name of the place just for thematic events sake so bear with me here but let's get into it because let's set the scene as to what the hell i'm talking about anuj what are you talking about okay so i want you to sit here and and close your eyes okay and i want you to transport yourselves to 1980s China, okay? You can open your eyes if you want. That was weird. I'm sorry I put you through that weird thought exercise. <laughs> but, okay, this, this story will take place in 1980s China, okay? And 1980s China, for those of you that don't know, was actually not the communistic, censored, crazy China that we think of today. Right. When we think of China today, we have a very different image than what it was like in the nineteen eighties. And you may be thinking, like, Anuj, wasn't communism still a huge part of China's culture? Absolutely, it was. But another thing that you guys don't really know is that modernization was taking full shape in China. And it was partially due to the fact that there was this guy by the name of Mao Zedong. Okay. So Mao Zedong was the leader of China from like the late fifties through the through the mid seventies, and basically, like, he was his goal was to like, you know, he he is he created like the foundation for the Chinese Communist Party that you see today and uh, make memes about. And Mao Zedong, you know, he had things like the one child rule, he the Cultural Revolution. There's a whole list of events that happened in Mao's China that I'm probably not going to get into today. But Mao, Mao was quite the leader, and a lot of people viewed him in a very negative light. But he died. He died. He passed away. And he is considered to be one of the reasons as to why China is the relevant world power that it is today. I think most historians agree, and most people who are uh, up on their history and sort of know what's going on also agree with that statement. So Mao Zedong dies in 1976, right? And then he's got this successor. And his successor is this man by the name of Hua Gaofang. Uh, sorry if I'm butchering these Chinese names. I looked them up on many translation sites. I'm just trying to emulate it. Okay, so bear with me. But Hua Hua Gaofang was basically sort of continued most of what the Mao Mao wanted him to right. He was kind of that communistic strong armed leader, sort of tried to continue those cultural revolution policies that were very unpopular amongst a lot of members of the country. Uh, and he sort of continued to enforce it. but he started to notice as he lost power and eventually as uh, he his hell or he resigned, he started to notice that, the people of China really did not like Mao Zedong's policies. And so he slowly started to retreat out of it. And what I mean like slowly, he was like dipping his toe into the wonderful ocean that is Western modernization. So he he pulls out of office in the early 1980s. And then all of a sudden, the Mao Zedong line of succession is gone. It wasn't a thing anymore. It's not real. And so China started to undergo some really subtle changes when it came to all of this. So it basically you're looking at the old guard sort of dying off and so a new foundation for china has been formed so to speak if for lack of a better word and so cue this new leadership that comes in because in 1980s 1980s china was all of a sudden kind of like your post uh you know mao era and and I guess like a good way to describe a post-Mao era for like people that don't really know, you know, what it was like to live under a dictatorial regime. It's kind of like, um, it's kind of like this. So like after Hitler got taken down in in the 40s in Germany, Germany uh, kind of went through this period of where it lost its identity, but it also gained its identity back. And that's kind of what China was. Uh, for after Mao Zedong left, because once you, your main leader is gone, your strong arm, your strong hold, you slowly, you don't have an identity anymore because for so long, your country is so dictated on this concept of uh, the dictator and his rules, his or her rules and et cetera, et cetera, that when the dictator and that strong leader leaves, all of a sudden the country's almost in sort of this identity crisis as to like, what are we doing? Like, where are we going? Where is the constitution? All of these things. And it takes a while to figure that out. And 1980s China was like, finally, when China figured it all out, it was like, okay, like I think we know where we want to go. And so all of a sudden, you're looking at this post Mao Zedong era where there was this almost Western renaissance of sorts in China. And like, I'm talking like, relatively speaking on China standards, like you had some decent free speech, a little bit more privatization of companies. So you started to see companies form a little bit more of a market economy rather than uh, the, you know. Government market-based economy that you had seen uh, in the last twenty years. It was this huge renaissance of the world. It was this. It, it was a country that finally was opening up to the Western world, and that was something that really hadn't been seen in a very long time. Particularly from China, uh, it almost stretches back all the way to like the times of the Silk Road when China was you know wheeling and dealing to other countries uh, because they were so they had so many resources and all of these things. Uh, it, 1980s China was sort of like that in terms of its uh in, in terms of it opening back up to the West and other countries and opening uh its relations up in a lot of ways. Um and the generation that grew up in 1980s China, like the kids, you know, the the people from the ages of like nine to you know, however many years old, they were sort of seen as this generation that was spoiled. Uh, in, in China, at least, right, because they were basically granted basic privileges that are basic privileges that we take for granted here in, in the United States, you know, being able to access information, being able to be out late at night, you know, all of the, all of these rules that we, you know, as Americans are like, oh, yeah, that's just normal. That's just a normal part of living in society. Uh and they were sort of like the generation that grew up in the 1980s of China was sort of seen as like the millennial Gen Z equivalent that were seen here in the United States, uh, which is pretty interesting. Since unlike their parents, who was sort of had to deal with all this cultural revolution, Mao Zedong, all of these like extenuating circumstances. So these this was like the first generation that was just open to Western freedom, which was kind of crazy. Um, and these kids were the gener- they're often also referred to in China as like the one child policy generation, because these were the kids that came from the, that policy. Uh, and so a lot of and, and the ironic part is they were born out of oppression, but uh, grew up with a ton of grew up with a relative amount of freedom, comparatively speaking, to their parents, which is kind of crazy. And. It was cool because China started like coming out with the, like their own pop culture scene, their own music. Everybody was like, you know, into the Western culture. It was being exposed. It, it was just free. Like people could have honest conversations about the government and not be worried that they were going to die. Uh, is you know that it it was a it was a strange time. And what the reason why I say like it was a free time in respect to China. Is that I mean? You look at China today. Like if if I were to if you were to go say some stuff about China, uh, or like say stuff about the government, like you would be genuinely a little bit afraid for your safety just because of the reports that we've seen, just because of the stuff that's been going on. China is, you know, it's had its suspect dealings with people, and 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 that's a fair assessment to have. But now in today's society. Or In the 1980s society, you could have those honest conversations and not necessarily be worried because the government was laxing up a little bit and opening up to that Western modernization. And it felt like even on a worldwide stage that China was opening up to the world. And so listen. Everyone's happy The people are discovering all these new things. Cult- there's this whole new culture that's being formed out of China. feels like China's drifting to more of Western attitudes. So who, who is heading this? What is going on to the point that we see all of these things happening in China? So let's talk about the key characters of our story here, because there's a few. So obviously, we talked about the guy who came before all of this stuff, Mao Zedong. And for those of you that don't know Mao, Zedong, like, I mean, I specified a little bit earlier, but we can go a little bit more into it. Mao Zedong was the dictatorial communist, one man, strong man leader of China who led them through the Cultural Revolution, which in short, uh, there's obviously a much more nuanced conversation to be had about this. The Cultural Revolution, in short, was a bunch of uh, government motivated material that was distributed, a bunch of rules that were distributed to Uh, Basically, make China into an industrial powerhouse was the goal that Mao Zedong was going for. And in that, he changed China for the better, in that, he just bolstered the economy like crazy. They suddenly became, you know, this worldwide, they became. Uh, relevant on the worldwide stage, but also for worse because people were treated horribly. He was targeting specific groups. Uh, You know what happens in these dictatorial situations. There's there's a little bit of good followed by a hell of a lot of bad. And that was the same thing with Mao Zedong, even though there are a lot of people in China today that, you know, due to censorship and also due to the fact that Mao Zedong's government is relatively still intact, that believe that Mao Zedong was a was a good leader but that is a debate that we can have for another day Mao Zedong is kind of the overarching figure of this story because he sort of formulated the foundations here then we're going to have a couple of other guys that we're going to talk about a little bit later but they're very important to the story so I thought we would uh get into them a little bit so the first main character I want to talk about is this guy by the name of Deng, Deng Xiaoping and I'm sorry if I butchered it again but Deng Xiaoping was the leader of China, basically through the the president of sorts through the 1980s, uh, for the most part. I think he got the presidency in about 1982, and he held it on until about 1990 or 1991. Uh, and he was sort of this main. Uh, architect of pushing china toward more westward leaning more progressive policies sort of opening up the country in all aspects of life whether that be through china being exposed to more western pop culture or china being uh you know exposing itself to other markets in terms of its international trading and stuff like that on the economic side as well uh that he was considered to be a moderate of china uh You know, Because he was someone who kind of had a little bit of liberal tendencies, but also wanted to stay rooted in the conservative past that China's communism had. And so he was surrounded by liberals and conservatives, and he tended to just kind of side with a little bit of both. Uh, So he was kind of the glue that was holding China together because he would push left and the conservatives would be pissed off. So he'd push a little right, but then the left would be pissed off. So then he'd push a little left. So he was kind of just playing the middle ground for a while. Um, and, and as a result, he pushed China like a lot more westward than it was, but not probably as westward as he could have been if he was, you know, more liberal, but he was, he was a moderate guy that was sort of trying to balance, uh, the left and the right, uh, or the more authoritarian side and the more free liberal side of China. And together basically, you know, he, he, he was part of uh, a healthy relationship with the United States for once for diplomatic relationships, which is kind of crazy, even though the cold war was going on at this point, he was a Western educated guy. He was super short, which is uh, kind of ironic for a leader. Usually when you think of a leader, you think of like a broad shouldered strong guy. He was a, this short little guy, but he was stern and uh, people feared him. And he he commanded a presence in a room from some of the speeches I watched. Uh, And, the thing is, the story of Deng Xiaoping is so improbable because during Mao Zedong's time and the Cultural Revolution, he had basically been like the modern day version of canceled from politics, like two or three times. Because people thought like his ideas of opening it up westward and all of these things were radical. They were stupid, especially in the Mao Zedong time when basically it was like it was my way or the high or the highway at that point. And so Deng Xiaoping's ideas were basically seen as, you know uh anti-China and he was kicked out of politics multiple times. He it's it's amazing that he like is he was in the position of power that he was in the 1980s to begin with. So his whole story is kind of crazy even to even have gotten to that point. But the thing with Deng Xiaoping, which we will later see, is that he made a critical decision in 1989 that probably forever shifted China and forever shifted the way that we as modern citizens of the world view China. So we're going to get into that in a little bit. But that's Deng Xiaoping, and he's one of the the main moderate of China, and he kind of pushed uh, China into a more westward-leading sort of mentality for a little bit. But then we have his adversary. Not his adversary, actually, per se, but one of the voices that was in his ear. Remember I was talking to you about how Deng Xiaoping had both liberal and conservative voices in his ear? Well, the main liberal voice in his ear at the time was this guy by the name of Hu Yabang, And Hu Yabang is the was like the liberal sort of the young man, the young people's champion of the Chinese Communist Party. And I mean, when you talk liberal, like when I say liberal in uh, in this in in the United States, like you probably think like, oh, like Kamala Harris, Joe Biden, he's probably the equivalent of like a, a, a average conservative Republican in today's society. But that was considered liberal in China because of the you know, the leaders that you've had in the past with like guys like mao Zedong and and uh, Hu Gaofeng and all of these things that had sort of led China uh, more to a more authoritarian state than anything. But he was considered to be the more li- one of the more liberal reform members of the Chinese Communist Party. And he was involved in the like the original uh, communist party within China. Like when Mao was there, he was he was in power. He was uh, within the political elite. But, when all the stuff started with the Cultural Revolution, Mao Zedong basically was like, "Okay, you can get the hell out of here. Like, you're you're not needed. Your ideas are stupid, and uh, they don't fit in with my agenda." And so he sort of fell apart. Uh, and Hu Yaobang eventually got banished to the countryside. He slept with like next to pigs and horses. And so he, like Deng Xiaoping, like both of them kind of had uh, were pushed out of office during Mao Zedong's time, and sort of had to like find themselves and pick themselves up and sort of. You know, rise through the ranks uh, once again, uh, in order for them to sort of gain power. So, and like, like I was saying, like when Deng Xiaoping got the power, Hu Hu Yaobang sort of benefited from that and became sort of that liberal voice within the CCP uh, party. And so Hu Yaobang basically, I mean, in short, believed that Mao was full of shit. Uh, he really thought that Mao Zedong was just, you know, a complete authoritarian leader. He was, you know, he he had his own ideas about Mao and and he was trying to change, change uh, the way that China was looked at. Uh, he wanted he was more on the westward side, wanted to push China westward, um, all of these things. And the critical decision that I'm going to talk about later basically rested on the fact that unfortunately, Hu Yaobang passed away. When uh, while, you know, sort of in office and within his political position in the Chinese Communist Party. And this led to this big standoff. Okay, so let's talk about that situation right now, because this is the whole situation uh, in China was headed to a head was going to a head, right? Because at this point, you you have your right side and you have your left side uh, of the Chinese Communist Party and slowly China is becoming more westward and, and the kids are becoming more liberal and they're exposed to all of these progressive ideas and they're having conversations about how they want to see the government change and and starting to like speak really freely uh, against the government and ideas that they disagree with. like It's turning into more of a Western country and it's kind of crazy. Like, people are like, what is going on? Like, what, what is, Like, what is happening? Like, China, the, the Western world was viewing this as, like, a, like they were embracing it. They were like, China's modernizing. Like, they're finally getting with us. But there were members of the Chinese Communist Party that were not happy with what was going on. And there is a lot of tension between the left side, which is like Hu Huyaobang's side that's trying to lead China towards a more sort of progressive future, and the right side of the Communist Party that's, you know, still very rooted within Mao Zedong's roots and wants to keep it, you know, China-centric and sort of continue the legacy that Mao Zedong set forth. So there's this whole sort of tension between these two, and it all comes to head in the spring of 1989. Okay, so what's going on in the spring of 1989 that sort of just leads all of this to happen? So let me, let me talk a little bit about 1989 first, and then we can get into uh the sort of context behind what i'm talking about in regards to this event uh and one of the things that i think that you all should know about gen z or not i think it's just a good good thing to think about uh in terms of the way that we look at our world today but 1989 1989 is one of the most crucial years in the world's history i would say besides 1915 was it 1915? 1914? 1914, 1915, 1914, 1914, 1915? Which year the Archduke was assassinated? I'm not sure. I, I feel like an asshole. I should know this. 1914. If I'm wrong, I think it was December, November, December of 1914, right? My history teachers will kill me. But it's okay. I think it was 1914. But the year of 1914 was one of the most crucial years because all of Europe was, uh, you know, just in a full tension state and the assassination of the Archduke basically like exploded into World War One. I'd say 1945 is up there. I'd say 1968 is also up there, but that's more of American history, with like Robert F. Kennedy's assassination, Martin Luther King, uh, stuff like that. And I'd say 1989 is also one of the more important years in the world's history. There's obviously a bunch more uh, that I'm forgetting off the top of my head, but those are the ones that, like, in, in modern history, the 20th and the 21st century, those are some of the most important years. And 2001, I would say, is also uh, in that conversation as well. But 1989 is one of the most crucial years in the entire world history. Right. The Berlin Wall came down. East and West Germany was no more. It was this whole new concept. Uh the Soviet Union begins to collapse uh, with Gorbachev like opening up everything and, and the sort of <laughs> compare and contrast between Gorbachev and Deng Xiaoping is, is quite interesting to look at from a historical standpoint. Uh and and this event that's about to happen. I mean, all of these like various and Bosnia and the revolution in Bosnia. There's, there's a bunch of other different events that happened, but 1989 was basically like the formation of the modern world. It was sort of like 1945 to 1989 was its own, like sort of cold war, like weird post world war two sort of um, foundation, like sort of uh, era. And that era ended in 1989 when, you know, future when basically countries started forming independently and, all of these, uh, all these things like apartheid, I think was around that time when it started to break in South Africa. So it was, it was a huge, it's a huge moment in history right now, but what's going on. So the spring of 1989, uh, we're in China and on April 15th of 1989, Hu Yaobang, who, like I explained, uh, in the key character section, who was sort of China's liberal stalwart passes away due to a heart attack. And so Hu Yaobang, who is basically the liberal stalwart and the guy who's whispering in Deng Xiaoping's ear about Western modernization and all of these things, is gone. He passed away. And so the main voice is sort of gone. And Deng Xiaoping, as a result, is sort of going to lean more right because the the voices aren't as loud on the left anymore because Hu Yaobang was basically one of the people that was uh, keeping that side sort of in contention and in Deng Xiaoping's ear but also here's the thing that was sort of unexpected by the government people did not realize how much uh, or the government did not realize how much young people loved Hu Yabang. Hu Yaobang was seen as this kind of hero for young people who was going like he was seen as the guy who was sort of on the way to creating a new China like he just he had the young people like wrapped around their finger like he was the hope he was the hope for them to have potentially the future that uh they're not their peers but other people in western countries were having with free speech and democracy and open conversation and and continue that sort of renaissance that had taken place in the 1980s in china Hu yaobang was basically one of the main reasons for that and and young people were were sad when he passed away and they came out all over china to mourn his death uh you know hosting little ceremonies little uh little uh, sort of gatherings, all of these things. And there's this huge contingent of students and young people in particular that are just not satisfied with the way that the government is running at this point, right? Hu Yaobang was gone uh, and had passed away. And he he was sort of their representation and their hope. And now that he was gone, young people were like, what the hell are we to do? I think China is going to shift back to more of a Mao Zedong approach. And young people were thinking to themselves, like, well, we got to do something like at least China is a little bit more progressive than maybe it was 20 years ago. We got to say something and we got to speak up about what's going on. That's what people, that's what the young people in China were thinking. I'm talking students. I'm talking like working class, just younger, the younger generation in China, that, that one child policy generation was thinking like, we got to do something. And after Hu yaobang's death, the demonstrations through spread all the way throughout the country. And, they sort of went from these like funeral mornings and these like, uh, you know, just saying like, oh, who passed away? Like, we're going to throw our little we'll pay our respects and throw a little funeral here and there. They turned into demonstrations because people because the young people in the country were pissed. They were not happy with the way things were being led. Uh, and this is coming from a lot of people who were younger and working class and they're just pissed. They were They were not happy with the way that China was running. And the point is, so now at this point, right, you have these young people that are starting to sort of form in in little uh, formations and kind of get together and protest their discontent for the government. And this is China we're talking about, right? This is in America. In America, protests happen every other day, and no one really gives a shit, right? There's probably a protest that's happening at San Jose City Hall tomorrow, and it's just kind of the way of life but in china protests do not usually happen and so at this point the government is seeing the traction that this is getting throughout the country and the things that the people that these young people are asking for like free press uh you know the government to get off their back for specific things like having it uh, the ability to maybe uh open it like have an open democracy elections like th- at this point people are like whoa 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 the government they're like whoa they're trying to come after us they're trying to come after our jobs and they're trying to come after power we cannot let this happen and the right side is eating at Deng Xiaoping's ear and they're saying yo the number of protesters are going up these students are mobilizing like they're a threat and they're talking about things and progressive ideas that we don't want china to have nah 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 like we we don't want this to go down and at the same time, there's this crazy situation that's happening with the government, right? Because the government is thinking like we have all these students that are like protesting against us and and talking their shit and saying all of these things. But Mikhail Gorbachev is coming to visit. So, like I explained earlier, okay, Mikhail Gorbachev in the 1980s was the leader of Russia. Uh, or the Soviet Union at the time. And he was known for basically opening up the Soviet Union to the rest of the Western world. He tore down the Berlin Wall. Uh, he was he's credited for a lot of uh, progressive, sort of more progressive policies when it came to opening up China opening up Russia and basically breaking down the entire Soviet Union, much to a lot of people's discontent. Uh, and so Gorbachev was basically planned a visit to China to sort of see if he could do the similar same thing, uh, or sort of basically because he had noticed that there was a or there was uh, during the Cold War a huge tension between China and Russia, and Gorbachev was like, all right, let's squash the beef because he had been doing this with a lot of Western countries. He did it with Reagan. You guys know their relationship. He signed a lot of accords with different what like European countries. Gorbachev was just you know on a squash the beef tour of the 1980s, and he was going to China. Uh, And Gorbachev uh, and and China was gladly receiving him. Deng Xiaoping wanted to have a conversation and was ready to receive him. And they were going to have this huge welcome uh, sort of banquet for him and this huge welcome party at Tiananmen Square in Beijing. But the problem was there was at this point thousands of students gathered in Tiananmen Square just protesting in the square about all of the various issues that we have been discussing earlier. And a bunch of these students at this point had decided, like, we have to do something bigger because the government isn't noticing. So we have to make them even more pissed. And they start going on a hunger strike. And basically, at the time that Gorbachev is supposed to come into China, there's, uh, and to, you know, be received by this huge welcome feast uh, at, uh, at the Forbidden City, si- or not the Forbidden City, si- at uh, at Tiananmen Square, there's a bunch of students who are like, "We're not going to eat until you guys do something, government. You better do something." And so they eventually, the government has to like scramble, and they have to cancel their huge celebration plan for Gorbachev in Tiananmen Square, uh, because of the fact that there's so many students and just a bunch of pissed off people gathered in the main square of Beijing. And so now the government is fucking mad because they're like, "Yo." We had an official welcome plan for Mr. Gorbachev, and the students basically said, fuck you, we're done. We're going to take matters into our own hands and run a huge hunger strike out here. So people are not happy. The government is embarrassed. They're humiliated because of the fact that basically they viewed the students as anti-China because they didn't allow the Chinese government to receive Gorbachev in the proper and appropriate way. And so... The government comes to make one final appeal to the students, like, please get out of Tiananmen Square. Like we and and this is like the, the biggest demonstration. There are demonstrations all over China, but the, I'm going to talk about the biggest demonstration and that it's Tiananmen Square. And in Tiananmen Square, it's the central square in Beijing. It's like the central plaza. And the government basically gets out there and they're like, listen, guys, just please leave. Like, we won't do anything. We like we understand your concerns. We'll take it into consideration. Like, please leave. And the students were like, uh, fuck you. Now nah, we're good. And they stayed. And so Deng Xiaoping at this point and his adversaries and his cronies and the people in his ear are like, okay, well, they humiliated us in front of another country. There's a bunch of students at this point that are just raging at all hours of the day in Tiananmen Square. They're getting bigger and bigger by the day. What is going on? And so the situation escalates. Uh, and. Now there's some tension, right? The students have a clear agenda as to what they're doing. They want more modernization. They're pissed that Hu Yaobang, who's like their main guy, their main leader, is gone. Their main uh, representation and mouthpiece for what they want is gone, and now they're they're anxious that China is going to delve back into more of a uh, uh, the, the conservative, communistic sort of nature that it was, and The government is pissed because they they just embarrassed China in front of Russia. And now there's like they're getting all these ideas that probably they don't. But the government doesn't want them to have. So let's get into the tension. Right. Because at this point, it's getting bad. And Deng Xiaoping is sitting there like, I don't have very many options. The students are growing. They're getting more and more angry. It's getting it's it's nonviolent. It's nonviolent. No one has gotten hurt. It's a lot of people just angrily chanting in the square at all hours of the day. But it's getting intense because this is getting worldwide media coverage at this point. There's people there. The tensions are high. And so Deng Xiaoping is like, okay, I'm going to try to just intimidate the shit out of them. And so this is what he does. Deng Xiaoping at this point basically takes a bunch of troops From you know in Beijing and starts rolling them out there. And he basically goes on the record and makes this official announcement that Beijing is under martial law. And he declares martial law in Beijing and he basically puts out a bunch of soldiers in near Tiananmen Square and throughout the city. Uh just to see, like just to intimidate him. I think this was his tactic. He's like, Okay, let me see what they do when I bring out a bunch of armed soldiers who are carrying semi-automatic weapons that if they piss one person off, they could just die. So when you bring out the soldiers, it's a whole different ballgame. This is when the government is recognizing, like, okay, there's a threat here. And so the protests are still peaceful at this time. Don't get me wrong. Nothing of the sort in terms of, like, danger or threat level is happening. Uh, The students aren't firing back. They aren't getting mad. They aren't getting angry. Any of this stuff. And the government is, quite frankly, feeling a little insecure. And so they bring out, they flex their muscle. They bring out their troops. They put the troops all over Tiananmen Square. The students are still peacefully protesting. Uh, And, yeah, and that's sort of Deng Xiaoping's move. And he thinks that the students eventually are going to get intimidated by the government and the fact that they keep bringing in more and more soldiers and tanks and all of these things. And nothing happens. Like, the students are still, like, protesting. Nothing nothing happens. Maybe a little skirmish here and there, but nothing crazy uh, happens. The soldiers don't do anything. The kids don't do anything. The soldiers don't do anything. The kids don't do anything. And so, at this point, it's a game of chess, right? The students are standing their ground. They're not going anywhere. They're not doing anything. And it's sort of this weird calm. It's this weird calm because... The soldiers, you know, aren't getting in any like I'm sure there's like a little bit of getting back and forth in each other's faces, but they're not acting. They're not firing their weapons. It's and the students haven't necessarily been uh, threatening, so to speak. So nothing nothing's going on Um, and things start to die down a little bit. You know, it's uh, it's nice protests. Everyone's kind of, you know, chilling, whatever. But the thing is. The the thing is, the one thing that none of the students knew that were in that square in 1989, in the spring of 1989, the end of April, or sorry, not the end of April, at the end of May, right around this time, next, right around this time, 32 years ago, there were a bunch of students in that square, protesting end of May, early June. The little did they know that China and their government and Deng Xiaoping. Remember how I said Hu Yaobang was gone. His major sort of talking piece on the left side was gone. So now it was all right. It was all about the sort of authoritarian, more right, more Mao centric sort of members of the government that were in Deng Xiaoping's ear. And they're telling him, they're like, dude, these students are a threat. They're talking about first, not first world, they're talking about developed countries. And their Western philosophies and their progressive philosophies. We can't have that in China. China is a powerhouse, and we got here for one reason and one reason only, and that's Mao. You cannot open us up to the rest of the world. It's going to turn into shit like this, and eventually they'll get violent and attack us. It'll be a civil war. This is what they're saying to Deng Xiaoping. And Deng Xiaoping doesn't have Hu bang in his other ear being like, "Dude, relax." They're just protesting. They're a little mad. Maybe we can make a few concessions here and there. Maybe we can, you know, come to a compromise. It's okay. He doesn't have that anymore. Liberal guy's gone. Now it's the right. And they have, they're all in Deng Xiaoping's ear and they're saying, bro, they're a threat. They're a threat. Let's, let's take them out. Let's militarily take them out. And Deng Xiaoping's sitting there and his guys are planning a huge offensive a huge offensive into Tiananmen square where there's thousands thousands of students at this point peacefully protesting and Xiaoping, he 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 doesn't have that liberal voice in his ear and he's got a lot of people around him telling him that he's getting he needs to eradicate the threat he needs to eradicate the threat and he he kind of sits on the fence that's what that week was for the calm before the storm he's sitting there he's Uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know. And then he's like, all right, fuck it. And so on June 2nd of 1989, in the middle of the night, basically a huge portion of the, of the Chinese army goes into Tiananmen square. I'm talking soldiers. I'm talking tanks, artillery, everything. And they just start firing. They All the soldiers just start firing guns in front of all of these students, just basically just trying to eradicate the threat. And students are running. They're screaming. There's people all over the place. This is thousands of people at this point. And it's just the Chinese army is just blowing everything up in their path. They're just blitzing through all of them, just shooting, shooting, boom, 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 boom. Like it's they're they're killing their own citizens these students who were peacefully protesting for about a month at this point were basically being gunned down uh, for protesting against the government. And Xiaoping's right side, sort of, the the conservatives won out because Hu Yaobang was gone. And the government just continues for the next two, three days to just gun people down, just take people out. And it's absolutely brutal. And that is Tiananmen Square. That's the incident that happened. And 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 that happened on June 2nd of the night. The next morning, thousands of citizens are just, you know, uh, the, but the next morning, here's the thing, right? The initial gun, like the, Deng Xiaoping thought he was like, all right, we're done. Like, I'm going to just send in the military. They're just going to gun everybody down. These students are going to be scared shitless and they're not going to come back. Thousands of people came back the next morning because and it wasn't just students at this point. It's just ordinary Chinese citizens because they're sitting there and they're like, what the fuck? These guys just got fired on for no reason. Hell no, this is not right. And they came out in the middle of the streets and started screaming at soldiers and just were pissed. And it got violent. And soldiers just started gunning down citizens in the street that would talk to them. And and it turned into this brutal, brutal situation. And. Thousands of citizens are getting in the faces of soldiers and they're killed and, and, and people are injured. And it's just, it's a mess in Beijing. It turns into this huge disaster and gunfire continues throughout this day. And some of the, and here's the craziest part is that the people of the government are starting to turn against what's going on because there's a lot of government radio stations in China that start to call this event filled with human rights violations, calling out the CCP saying, what the hell are you guys doing, killing your own citizens for no reason? What is going on? And it just turns into this huge state of like sort of every citizen from themselves. It's just it's a terrible, terrible situation. And unfortunately, the government wins out because they just have access to all the arms and the army just starts to gun people down. And And it turns into a horrible couple of nights of just gunfire and violence and gunning people down for really just speaking their minds and and wanting a more progressive and a more open democracy, which is not a unfair question to ask. And so overall, it's just a terrible, terrible night. And so the situation came to a head and and China basically decided to say, fuck you to the citizens that were protesting, not even make any concessions and just try to gun them down. And and they had their way. Uh, and that's the story of Tiananmen Square. But look, here's the thing. I I see the point where a lot of people talk about how is Tiananmen Square a cautionary tale or is it ins- or is it an inspirational story, right? Because Here's the thing. I could see it on both sides. Tiananmen Square is a cautionary tale in so many senses. The fact that thousands of people, for no good reason, were gunned down by their government for basically just talking and criticizing their government in a very peaceful manner. Uh, And it really goes to show, like, how far can you truly push your government before they come out with a bunch of guns and start killing you? right how far can you really go before your own life is at stake and there's always a limit as to the impact that truly people can have because there's not a lot of people in China right now that are in you know firm belief with Tiananmen right you you would think that like with the Tiananmen square shit that happened there's a lot of people in China that are like yo that was horrible we need to come back and we need to fight harder but the thing is that the, the, the worst part about Tiananmen, and I'm going to talk about it a little bit later, is that it shut everybody up. That was the last sort of revolt. The, not It wasn't even a revolt. It was just the last sort of organized resistance that took place in China for 32 years now. There hasn't been anything like that because people are shit scared that they'll come out and just gun people down for no reason. And it, and this is why I say it, why is Tiananmen a cautionary tale? Because it's the day democracy died in China. Really, to be honest, it's the day that democracy died. When when a, when a leader sends a huge army of people out to kill their own citizens, it's the day that democracy, frankly, died. And, but who knows? Like, and and the scariest part of this being a cautionary tale is that authoritarian governments control the narrative. The Chinese government. B- doesn't recognize Tiananmen of course they don't because they didn't make a mistake they don't they rarely talk about Tiananmen it's one of the most censored subjects in the entire country a lot of people in China who've lived in China their whole lives don't even know what the fuck went on there's no exact death tolls as to how many people died it's a it's probably in the thousands but people don't want to there's no exact number because the Chinese government's hit all the numbers Uh, the fact that I'm talking about this probably means that uh, I will, like, if I ever, if this video ever were to go somewhere on the internet, like, I would be fucking murdered in China. And, like, it. this is the most, like, Tiananmen Square is one of the most heavily censored events in the entire world, particularly in China. And so that's why I think it's even more important to make videos about it, and even more important to talk about it, because there's not a lot of people that talk about Tiananmen and what happened. Um, And and yeah, but that's the cautionary tale side, right? Why is this inspirational? Why is Tiananmen inspirational to people? Why why should you feel inspired by the fact that thousands of people were gunned down by the Chinese army? Here's why you should feel inspired. Because there's a bunch of younger people out here, out there that were pushing the conversation. They pushed the government. They went out there, they stood for their rights, whether they passed away or not. They were a bunch there were a bunch of people out there that stood up that stepped up to the plate and said, enough, enough, we're done. We're, we're going to, we're going to talk about the government. And that is truly something that you can take as inspiration that there are people out there that despite the circumstances, I mean, you saw what happened to a bunch of these people. They unfortunately passed away. I mean, they, they pushed the conversation forward. Uh, They may not have pushed it in their own country, but, I'm sure there's a bunch of other countries out there that they pushed in. I mean, they inspired an entire generation of change and we don't even know it because Tiananmen like really happened as a bunch of millennials were born and as a bunch of millennials were growing up. And so seeing that and seeing a bunch of these, like not revolutions, but seeing a bunch of these like authoritarian governments come down in 1989 is the reason why like millennials, in my opinion, like millennials and Gen Z are seen as like some of the big, Like, catalyst for change, and like, we're seen as viewed throughout the world as the generation of changes because we grew up with that. We grew up with people bringing down the Berlin Wall and authoritarian governments coming down because of social change and all of these things. And, and Tiananmen, like, despite its horrific and tragic end, may have inspired a bunch of people throughout the world to cause some significant social change and whatever that may be. And, I mean, I think the main example of this is Egypt. I think Egypt and Tiananmen Square have so much in common. Like the Egyptian revolution of 2011, in my opinion, is, well, first of all, never gets talked about for some reason. I don't know who the fuck decided to like not talk about Egypt. There was a whole ass developed country in Egypt that underwent a revolution that literally citizens through Facebook groups and Twitter groups, of course, there's more to it, and I, there's a whole subject you can talk about. That literally went and revolted against the government to bring in a new president and bring in new rules and bring in a whole new conversation, and it's insane. Tienman and our, like we could talk about that for a second. I want to do that for a second. Look, Tienman ended in a horrific, tragic failure, but the like the Egyptian revolution was the reverse of what happened in 2000 reverse of what happened in Tiananmen because it was, it started the same way. There was this huge police brutality case by this guy. uh, There's this huge police brutality case uh, in Egypt by the, what was his name? Uh, Like there was this kid named, I think his name was Khaled Said or something. I'm I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing the name, but Khaled Said was basically like this kid who was like studying at an internet cafe and he was accused of some petty crime. And the police like, absolutely like beat him to death. And like his pictures of his corpse got leaked on the internet and it was just mutilated and it was horrifying, horrifying. And so it led and like that and a bunch of other events, like basically were the catalyst for this huge revolt in Egypt of like the presidency was doing nothing like this guy, Mubarak president Mubarak, uh had held power in egypt for like 30 years he was going to give it to his son people were pissed at that and a bunch of non-violent protests started taking place where people like started to gather in many of the major cities in egypt and just like they were like what the hell is going on like we need change and th- and it was a lot of younger people that were just pissed off with the way the old government was being repressive they were pissed off at khalid said like all of these things and they took to the streets to basically demand the resignation of his president and there's a bunch of variety of different reasons as to why they went out there. But I mean, the Khaled saved case and a couple of other reasons uh, were one. Of, or were some of the critical reasons as to why they were out there. And it led to this huge, intense standoff between the government and between uh, protesters for a couple of weeks. And there were clashes with the military. Like Things started to get intense. It was getting worldwide news coverage. It was turning into this whole situation. Uh, but eventually, the government, instead of doing what they did in Tiananmen, which was just send tanks and artillery and just started gunning down protesters, they Mubarak resigned. He he basically uh, resigned to the protesters demands after a lot of pressure and a lot of back and forth. But he eventually resigned and it basically led to the protesters getting what they wanted because of the Egyptian revolution. And the thing is, the Egyptian revolution was it was people coming together and fa- on Facebook and on Twitter and on all of these various social media platforms to advance the conversation forward. Uh, which is something that we frankly haven't, it was the first revolution of its kind in that it used social media to to uh, control the flow of information and also control the fact that, uh, uh, control the fact of people getting together and actually saying something and doing something. And it truly represents like what could have happened if Tiananmen was in a different era. Like if Tiananmen was in 2011, I think the situation ends completely differently. Um, but unfortunately, you know, it happened in 1989 and, and things happen and that's unfortunately the way it is but the egyptian revolution was like a lot like tiananmen but it ended very very differently and i mean it's almost kind of like i hate to say it but like it's like tiananmen had to come in order for egypt to succeed and and uh, and it, and that's kind of how i view view all of that stuff with uh, with the whole situation with egypt and all of that and listen i mean tiananmen like i'll i'll say it again is one of the most censored uh, topics in all of China. You you, you can if you search up Tiananmen Square on Google in China. I'm pretty sure it only comes up with like the actual uh, Wikipedia page of like what the historical definition of like what Tiananmen Square means, and not much else. Um, most of the government just pretends like it didn't happen. It's just a conversation like, oh yeah, whatever. Like shit didn't happen. Like why do we care so much to the point that like. It's so censored in China that not a lot of people around the world talk about it. I mean, it was a huge deal in 1989, I'm sure, and in 1990, but we don't talk about it today. I mean, this, this was one of the huge events that has pushed U.S. and China relations. But not only U.S. and China relations, it has pushed the way we think about China today into the picture. I'm sure there's much more, but Tiananmen Square has been the was the catalyst for what we see modern communist China as right now and we don't even talk about it that much which is crazy to me. fucking mind blowing 32 years 32 years when this episode drops it's going to drop June 4th June 4th is it's going to be the 32nd anniversary it's going to be past the 32nd anniversary of Tiananmen Square and there's not a lot of people in our generation that know about Tiananmen Square yet it inspired a whole generation of change and i think that's why and and why should you care about Tiananmen i've been going on this huge rant <laughs> For the last 20 minutes as to why you should care. Because it's truly one of the events that I think, in my opinion, it's synonymous with the modern world. It's huge with everything going on um in, in East Asia. It's it's scared so many people in China that they don't even talk about it today. It's heavily censored. People don't do like there hasn't been a huge revolt or huge protest since TM in China. It changed the scope of relations with the East and the West. Like it. Like I had talked about earlier with Tiananmen and Arab Spring, like it founded modern day activism. Uh, I know social media didn't exist during Tiananmen, but it sort of brought about this new way for social revolutions to exist. And the fact that the social revolution has to come from the youngest members of the population. And I think the two years that every single person in the United States of America And every single person around the world who's alive in the 21st century should study are 1989 and 2001, because those are the two years that have single-handedly shifted the way that the modern world works. And I mean that. And 2020, 2022. I mean, but 2020, like, (laughs) I guess you could study 2020 now. Is it history, technically? I mean, yeah. So like, I guess 1989, 2001, 2020 uh, are all the years that I think, in my opinion, so far have shifted the way that we look at the modern world, and we look at uh, this new era that we're in today. Um, and listen, I just I, I want to put this little PSA out here before we wrap the show up. There's a lot of people out there that claim they're really up on their current events, and they they may they may very well be. They may very well be very up on their current events, and that's fantastic. I'm really happy for you if you are. That's great. I'm happy. Good. But also to fully understand current events, bro, you have to understand the history behind these current events, the precedent of why these current events are so big. That's why I've been stressing, look at the foundations of Roe v. Wade. Look at the Supreme Court justices. Talk about the dynamics on the court before you talk about the big picture issue. And that's kind of what I wanted to do with this piece today is like we have so many things going on. Hold on. Hold on. Let's take a step back. And let's look at and figure out, like, what is going on in regards to uh, what has happened in the past and how is this going to affect the future? And I mean, I think my hope is that people listen to this episode and they learn something about Tiananmen Square and, and want to do further research and their own due diligence on it and see how that that event with Deng Xiaoping making the decision he did shifted the way that we view China as American, normal American citizens today. Um, And it's kind of crazy. And I I, I genuinely think that people have, people have a great, I think actually um, to our credit, I think our generation has a really good grasp of current events. And I think a lot of that is to do with memes and just how up to date people are on pop culture and, and just what's going on in the world because of social media. But I also think people in this generation have such a lack of command for history that it's not even funny. Like it's, it's ridiculous. Uh, and I think like in order to fully understand, like I'm going to repeat this again, in order to fully understand current events of the world, it is absolutely important that everybody understands the history behind where we are, because if you don't have the history and you don't know the precedent, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about when it comes to current events. I'm sorry. Um, and news needs history. And history needs the news. It's this weird relationship of like, okay, if you're a journalist, you should also be pretty up on your history. You should also know about the past events. You should know about the people. You should know about these things. Um, and it's a relationship that really goes unexplored, in my opinion. Uh, but it's something that genuinely deserves a future look. And there's a bunch of people, man. <laughs> I And it's crazy. Like It's been 32 years since Tiananmen happened uh and there's not a lot of people talking about it even like today like i i was like like june 3rd june 2nd is today i'm recording this at like t- almost one in the morning on june 2nd and i i mean I, i'm ex- i'm trying to see how much media coverage Tianman gets uh in the next couple of days i don't think it'll get much but i'm interested to see like who talks about what and uh for those of you that didn't know about tm i hope you learned a little something um about a very tragic event that happened in China, but it forever shifted the way that we think about China and shifted the way that I'm sure Chinese citizens act around their government. But yeah, that's all I got. Listen, if you guys liked the episode, thank you so, so much for listening to the very end. I appreciate every single one of you. If you guys liked it, feel free to hit the like if you're on YouTube and the subscribe button. Um, And if you guys are interested in my, or if you guys are on Spotify first, feel free to hit the follow button. Feel free to rate my episodes, hopefully five stars. If it's one star, that's cool too. If you're on Apple Podcasts, feel free to leave the same reviews as well or any other podcasting app for that matter. If... You guys like my content and you dig everything. Feel free to follow me on socials. I post on Instagram almost daily. So you guys would be able to be engaging with my content out there. At the Changavi show on Instagram, on Facebook, on TikTok. I post TikToks daily as well. Posting a lot about the Warriors NBA Finals today, technically. Um, Going to be a very, very, very exciting uh, so I do a lot of warrior content on my TikTok page, but I also do a lot of the podcast clips and also some other stuff. I've had a lot of fun with that recently. So TikTok at the Chengavi Show, Facebook at the Chengavi Show, Instagram at the Chengavi Show, Twitter at the Chengavi Show as well. Uh, I am super inactive on Twitter, but I'm going to try to get better at that. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much all I got. Uh, feel free again, like, subscribe, follow. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Share with your friends, your girlfriends, your parents, uh, if you guys liked it. All right. Anyway, that's all I have today. Thank you guys so much for listening. Appreciate every single one of you. Love y'all. And uh, I'll catch y'all for an after show. Maybe? Yeah, I'll catch y'all for an after show this week and also another Shanghavi show too. Stay tuned. Content's coming in waves. I promise. All right, guys. I'm out. Have a great rest of your day, evening, night, whatever. And uh, I'll catch you on the flip side. Jangabi Show is signing off from the parents' house in the South Bay. All right, guys. Peace.